so it's like, well, what do we do? You know, do we then tell the people who say it wasn't that serious that they're the ones who are living in a world of illusion? Or there's some people who take it seriously and some people who don't. You know, there's so many questions that we have yet to answer. Like right now is just the reckoning, I think. And then we're going to start parsing this all out. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. All right, welcome back. Thanks for tuning in today. Today's interview is a challenging one, difficult topic to talk about, difficult topic to think about, but one that's very important, particularly for this community we speak with Vanessa Grigoriadis, the author of the best-selling book, Blurred Lines, Rethinking Sex, Power, and Consent on Campus. This is a deeply reported and wonderfully written book. I encourage all of you to check it out. I encourage you to read it, talk about it with your family, talk about it with your children. This is important stuff, and it's stuff that we've had certainly more than our fair share of challenges in public here at the University of Montana in Missoula. So, it was great to talk to Vanessa. I, I thank her for her generosity of thought and time and her willingness to just randomly field a call from this random guy out of Missoula, Montana, who wanted her to come on the podcast here. We had a great conversation. It was one of our first attempts at a remote conversation, and you'll hear some background noise on Vanessa's end. It was challenging, but I think, uh, and maybe distracting to the listener, but I think it's worth it that we bring this content to you and that you think about these issues and you hear the wisdom of somebody like Vanessa who has just dedicated a large chunk of her professional life to investigating this issue and finding truth, finding clarity. She speaks about sexual assault on campus with a great degree of poise and clarity, and she just really gets to the issue in a way that few other conversations I've ever had about it have been able to get there. So excited to bring you that conversation. As I said, get the book, Blurred Lines. We talk about it a bunch in this conversation, and I'll turn it over to Vanessa Grigoriadis. Okay, so here today with Vanessa Grigoriadis. Vanessa, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So I got to say, your book has been uh, an amazing experience to read. I came across it shortly after uh, reading John Krakauer's book about what's what's happened here in Missoula, and thought that you would be a great person to talk to. I mean, reading your book was sort of like, and I mean this in, in a really complimentary way. I, reading your book was kind of like watching The Revenant. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I was, I've gotten that reaction from some people. Yeah, I was gripped. I could not put it down, but it was very <laughs> it's uncomfortable to read. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so maybe I'd love to start with the, uh, and this maybe was like the formative case for for this book was the the, the Emma Solkowitz, uh, Paul Nungesser case because that I think was my first touch point to your writing. I read about that story in in New York Magazine and uh, followed it a little bit. Didn't realize that was you doing the reporting until I started Blurred Lines. But uh, maybe take us back to that case and just lay out what that was about and why you got so interested in it. 
Sure. So I, um, you know, I'm a Gen X mom of two and I write mostly about pop culture. I read a lot about youth culture. I worked for Rolling Stone for many years and, um, I covered, you know, in the 2000s, that culture was basically mainstream youth culture was, you know, Paris Hilton and Jessica Simpson and the rise of reality stars and celebutants. And, um, you know, it wasn't, uh, anything to do with feminism or radicalism right i mean in some ways the 2000s i think will feel to historians like the 80s um Uh despite the the uh you know large downturn that happened in 2008 that i i believe kind of kicked off um the some of the radicalism that we're seeing today um so around like you know, 2008, 2009, I could see that there was a shift bubbling up in the blogs in terms of the way kids were talking about um, politics or their identities, you know, kind of the rise of identity politics was beginning to start there. Um, But it wasn't until 2012 or 2013 that sexual assault began to be something that was really getting discussed a lot on college blogs, in college newspapers, um, amongst students themselves, uh, there started to be this new attention. And I began charting that and then ended up writing the piece that you mentioned in 2014 about Emma Solkowitz and Paul Nungesser. And so, yeah, that case was just so interesting because, I mean, it's sort of an encapsulation of your book's title, Blurred Lines. I mean, it's such a murky case. It's not like, you know, your classic vision of violent rape. It's one of those areas where it seems like there's a lot of area where reasonable people could disagree about, you know, what happened in that case. When I first started reporting on campus sexual assault back in 2013, 14, um, I looked at it as an uncomplicated story. You know, I yeah. Went to a very progressive school. I went to Wesleyan in mm-hmm. Connecticut, a small liberal arts school. In the 90s, there was actually a movie made about Wesleyan called PCU. You may or may not remember it. I do it. remember it, yep. And uh, it was, you know, not not a great movie, but, uh, but it's out there. And I looked at the campus sexual assault story as something that was truly about um, black and white predators and victims. Mm-hmm. Um, the patriarchy and, you know, the girls who are being crushed by the patriarchy. And I just didn't think of it much like other in other than in that way. And if I'm being honest, when I think about the early nineties, when I was in college at Wesleyan and I went to take back the night rallies, I don't think I would have known if you said to me, well, if somebody grabs you at a party and kisses you and you're pushing them away, is that sexual assault? Sure. Okay. I don't think I would have known what to say. You know, I think I still thought of it like, well, it's scary guys. You know, some of them might be strangers in a parking lot or maybe it's those creepy frat guys I don't hang out with because I'm liberal. I I don't think I had any comprehension. I was not a radical. I was like a very center kind of liberal, you know, Clinton supporter. Um, And there were radicals on that campus who were talking in the 90s just in the way that they talk today, saying, you know, sexual assault needs to be 
um, define incredibly broadly. It's happening all the time. People just don't see it, blah, blah, blah. But I just wasn't one of those people. So when I first met, you know, Emma Sokowitz, I thought, well, this is like a heroine. And you know what? In a lot of ways, she is still a heroine to me, even though her story became more and more complicated. Um, and she ha- is, she's the student that was at Columbia who, you know, became a viral sensation in 2014, if anybody recalls it now, um, for carrying her actual Columbia mattress That's right, around mattress girl. the campus um, for an entire, you know, school year to protest um, Columbia not uh, punishing the boy that she said um, had raped her. They had had a hearing, just like the ones that have happened in Missoula, right, with a school, mm-hmm. um, a school hearing. And in that hearing, Columbia said he was not at fault. And there were actually two other women who um, accused him of some sort of kind of more low-level um, grope in one case. And the other one said he was emotionally abusive in the relationship that they were in. But those two women kind of fell you know, they were just like, we don't want to deal with this whole process. It's a lot more involved than we thought. Forget it. We're not going to really bring charges. And she was the only one who was kind of left. And so this project, you know, really kind of captured um, the imagination of America because it was so incredibly strange. You know, here's this person carrying around, you know, a six foot long mattress all across Columbia's campus, like even Hillary Clinton said, you know, that image of her walking around should haunt us all. So it was kind of early in the Me Too movement. I mean, it was very early, Um, but it became a huge thing. And I wrote a story about it for New York Magazine. And eventually I spun the book that we're discussing out of that story. And it seems like one of those cases where you know, you see that this 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 young woman, uh, Emma Solkowitz, is is sort of doing. She's an art student. She's doing this sort of live protest art. Um, you know, basically trying to draw attention to the fact that she was raped and she didn't like how the system has been had been treating her and, and all of that. But then you start reading about the layers of the details of the assault, and it just gets really blurred. I mean, not to sort of put a, use a pun to the, to the title of your book, but you know, they had had, you know, these two had had previous relations. They had had sexual encounters previous to that, that same evening. They had had sex that night. Yeah. They they were having sex and she accused him of, of having anal sex without her consent, even though they had had vaginal and oral sex. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I think people really reacted to with her was that, um, there were a series of text messages that Paul dug out um, that made her really look um, just unreliable. And she had said one, sent one to him after the supposed act where um, she had said, I love you, Paul, where are you? Right. Um, she had sent another one saying, we need to talk, you know, because we haven't had a real chill session since the summer. And I mean, she explained those to me and other people as just like, I was naive. Like, I didn't understand that, you know, you bring a rapist up on charges at the school or criminally. I thought you just talk to him. And I was trying to get him to sit down and talk to me and be all nice and cute about it, the way girls are. Right. And look, a lot of women do that. Like, a lot. I mean, you would be shocked um, how many young women will 
say to the guy that, you know, they may later accuse of rape, like, hey, the next day, like, I had fun last night, but something happened that I wasn't totally comfortable with. Could we talk about it? You know, like in the most, you know, non-flammatory, anti-inflammatory way possible. So I don't know that those, look, I think it's a mystery what happened with Yeah. Them. I yeah. don't think we'll ever know. Just the way I don't think we'll ever know what happened with Brett Kavanaugh. But you know, Emma was fairly reliable. It's true that over time, as Paul began digging further and further and further into the things that he had from their long relationship and the texts and the photos and the this and the that, he was able to come up with some damning stuff. But, you know, one thing people just simply do not talk about is that these cases are so often really hard to prove. I mean, I had a police officer say to me, you know, sexual assault cases, the people who, the police detectives who who handle those, those are the real um, artists in the department. Right. And it's because of this consent defense. It's because, you know, you can always say, well, Emma wanted it and then she made it up later. And you can say that with so many of these cases, you know. Well, and that gets to kind of two big themes of your book that I'd love to explore. First, the first is consent and how, how you know, how to get consent, what that means. And then secondly, and maybe we'll get to the second, is, you know, this, this issue of process and burden of proof. And, you know, like in the Kavanaugh case, I think people were, some people expected it to be, or, or you know, people on the right sort of painted it to be, like a legal proceeding where you had to have reasonable doubt, you know, and, and then others would say, no, it's just a preponderance of the evidence. And, you, you know, you talk about the different standards in, in your book, but, you know, maybe let's start with consent and, and what that actually means and how that definition is changing and, and affirmative consent and all the different uh, iterations of it that you, you explore in your book. Yeah. I mean, again, when, uh, I started working on this book, you know, I, as a 40 something person, didn't really think that much about this. I've been married for a number of years, you know, I just always thought about like, no means no, that's just right. what the standard is. Well, that would, no. that's what we were told for so long. Right. Exactly. And, you know, with the kind of 180 or not even 180 but let's say 100 degree shift that president obama um asked colleges to make dealing with sexual assault right in 2011 he was like you must deal with this much more seriously you must take victims much more seriously and use that preponderance of the evidence standard right the more likely than not standard that to be found you know guilty let's use use this you use this great like Mm-hmm. Well, you describe it as the feather, I think, or, you know. Yeah, 50, 50% plus a feather. Right, right, right. It's the standard. Okay. That's the standard. And, um, and I think that you really, uh, you can't really, like, uh, understand how um, these cases are being decided at a college level without really reckoning with that and saying, like, wow, okay. 50% plus a feather. Is that really what we want to have as, you know, our standard for kind of messing up uh, an accused guy's life? Um, and I 
discuss this, you know, ad nauseum, really, yeah. in my yeah. book and come around to the idea that it actually is a good standard because of the reason I said before, which is they are so hard to decide that little bits of evidence actually can um, tip the scales, you know. So he's, um, so Brett Sokolow is a uh, really like kind of the Title IX guru across the country. Um, he's been involved in so many of the high profile cases and he runs the association for all the Title IX officers. Okay. Title IX officers, of course, being the ones who are involved in these sexual misconduct cases. Um, but he advocates, you know, he, he had the idea of, you know, 50% plus a feather, uh, describing that as the standard um, for teaching Title IX officers. But he also, he was a really smart guy and has a really nuanced understanding of consent and sexual assault. And he does, like I do, like this idea of yes means yes, but, you know, he thinks it needs to be contextualized. So okay. the idea of yes means yes is basically like, you know, it used to be or it still is like our, you know, reigning legal theory in this country is that everybody is, you know, agreeing to have sex with everybody else at any time until somebody says no. Uh, okay. Right? Like the default That's, position is consent. Yeah. Okay. Right. That's the default position. And that um, is something that colleges have been increasingly uncomfortable with because they would like to make things, you know, to their mind more, easy to adjudicate in the colleges. And one way that's easier is like, particularly because they're dealing with a lot of cases that involve alcohol, right? Uh Is like, was this person passed out or not? Well, here's a good way of knowing. Did they, were they able to answer like a question? Like, do you want to do this? Isn't that better than just saying silence is consent? Because if somebody's kind of half passed out, silence really shouldn't be the standard by which it's, you know, judged whether they wanted to do this or not. So I think, um, you know, it makes a lot of sense. Brett Sokolow has this idea of, he says, you know, if I want your wallet, you have to, yeah, I have to ask for your wallet, right? And then you have to give me permission. If I want your iPhone, I have to ask for your iPhone and you have to give me permission. So why is it that with sex, our legal theory is everybody's agreeing to have sex until somebody says no. And that doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, the only issue is that, you know, colleges would like to expand this to cover cases like Emma Sulkowitz saying, okay, well, you could have had one kind of sex, but you need to actually ask for every base that you go to, every sexual act, you need to ask permission because otherwise somebody like Emma Sulkowitz is going to come back and say, well, we did have sex, but we didn't have that kind of sex. Sure. I didn't consent to that kind of sex. And I think that starts to get into like kind of, you know, just undergraduate, you know, la la land a little bit. A New Angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Hi, I'm Jackie Moore. I'm a Regents Professor of Marketing at the University of Montana College of Business, and you're listening to A New Angle. A lot of people who study consent do not agree with me on that, but I, that's where I come out on it. Okay. Yeah. And you know, like, like the, the Sokolo kind of currency analogy I found 
you know, when I started reading it, I, I felt like it was pretty compelling. And you know, he was saying, if you you can touch my one dollar bill, but you can't touch my twenty. Right. You know, and then I think, well, what breaks down is that you're not really touching the one dollar bill. You're 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 touching that one dollar bill, taking it and going and buying some really arousing drug. And then coming right. back and saying, I'd like to buy 20 more doses of that drug with your $20 bill. So, you know, you, you layer in one, just arousal, and then you layer in two, like all the different substances that a lot of these cases involve, alcohol, various mm-hmm. drugs, et cetera. This is where it gets super murky. Yeah. I mean, look, memory is already murky, right? right? When you think about something like the Kavanaugh hearings, you know, the truth is that Christine Blasey Ford was never going to be able to prove that he did it. Right. You know, when her friend, the, the female friend who was there supposedly with her that night said she didn't remember it, that was game over for her as far as I was concerned. As far as like a legal case in front of a Senate Judiciary Committee. Yeah. I mean, and I understand that the Democrats wanted to buy themselves an extra week because they figured, well, we'll buy an extra week. We'll see what else we can turn up. And remember, you know, there's the woman, Deborah Ramirez from Yale, with a story about Kavanaugh exposing himself to her at at a dorm party. And that was provable because she had told other people at that time. Right. Or other people, okay, she didn't tell the other people, but other people were present, other people had heard. It was a story that circulated through the dorm. You know, when the FBI went to talk to Ramirez, she said, I have 20 names of you to call. Other people went on the record to The New Yorker later and said, I did hear about that at the time. So that was provable. Uh But, you know, the Republicans didn't allow anybody to hear from Ramirez. And then, of course, we would have to answer the question, do we care that Brett Kavanaugh exposed himself to this woman at 18, you know, is that enough of a reason to take him off the Supreme Court, which was going to be a really hard question for a lot of people to answer. But in terms of Blasey Ford, yeah, I mean, I think there's no investigation that solves a 36-year-old, you know, attempted assault right. or attempted rape, I guess you would call it, because it was technically an assault since, you know, he was pawing at her and groping at her and putting his hand over her mouth. But what she describes, you know, I don't want to be like sounding as though I'm not um, sympathetic to what she's saying, but I'm, I'm just saying that, you know, the, the reasons that people are, are thinking about things like a yes means yes standard, or how can we change the drinking culture on campus? How can we change our dorms and do things like bring an easy chair into a dorm room? So there's not just like a bed for kids to sit on at night when they're hanging out. The reason people are doing all these things is because if it was so simple that you could just figure out who had done it, you just kick those guys out and that would be the end of it. But it's not. It's not simple to identify the people. It's not simple to figure out who's done it once and actually feels bad and will never do it again. Who is serial? Who's a serial predator? You know? Um, and it's not simple to, to understand how to change the behavior. Like, we're doing a really good job with attitude right now. The Me Too movement is about changing attitudes, uh-huh. but you know, there's no data showing that anything has changed. And it's a little early, but you know, it's been five years people have been talking about this on college campuses. There's no data showing that there's a you know drastic drop. Well, in- yeah, and speak to that a little bit. I mean, in terms of data, there's there's huge problems with trying to 
you know, there's problems, like you said, with trying to investigate these individual cases and understand what's actually occurring. But then if you try to aggregate and study it at a, at a, at a broader level and create data sets and all that, it's really hard to measure these outcomes. And no, what- it's, it's, it's absurdly hard, you know, partially because of this question of do you measure the behavior or do you measure who who has actually been a perpetrator or a victim, right? right. Like, because I can take a, a, a survey, and this is why we get such high numbers, right? Why we get the one in five kind of number of college students saying that they've been sexually assaulted when 20% of them are virgins at graduation. It seems like really crazy, but the reason that you're getting these high numbers is when you put it in black and white and you say, has anybody like tried to have sex with you or had sex with you when you were too drunk to consent or, you know, kind of pushed you down on a bed or, you know, held your arm behind your back or these things that sound like incredibly grotesque. But this is part of what adolescent sexuality is like, right? People Mm -hmm. do have sex with people who are like nearly passed out. People do have sex like, okay, wait, don't leave. I got this girl in my room. Hey, don't you want to stay? Blah, 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 cajoling. Maybe, you know, just like playfully pushing somebody down on the bed. Maybe not so playfully pushing somebody down on the bed. Um, the idea that one thing like that would have happened to a student through, you know, two or four years of college is not crazy. It really isn't. It's mm-hmm. not like, um, you know, I... I think where we have a problem as a country is then, you know, we say, oh, okay, all these people are sexual assault victims. And then other people say, well, what the hell? Come on. It can't be this many people are sexual assault victims. And it's like, well, okay, they're victims of that behavior. Whether they would call themselves victims or not, that's a whole other question. Because when you ask people, who've been victims of that behavior, if they aren't indeed sexual assault victims, only half of them will say yes. And one of the main reasons why half of them don't say yes is because they click a box that said, did not think it was serious enough. Sure. And and that's real, you know? So yeah. you have like this incredibly complicated thing happening where, you know, progressives want to kind of push forward this notion that, you know, everybody takes this so seriously and it traumatizes you for your rest of your life. And it's the worst thing that could ever happen to anybody. And it's true that some of these people are super, super traumatized. And sometimes, you know, the actual thing that happened to them is not that big a deal, quote unquote, like the Blasey Ford thing. Okay, Mm -hmm. nothing happened. You know what I mean? Like she wasn't raped, right? But she's traumatized and she's talking about it 30 Yeah, lifelong effects. It's coming up in marriage counseling. I mean, it's it's, it's stayed with her. Exactly. So it's like, well, what do we do? You know, do we then tell the people who say it wasn't that serious that they're the ones who are living in a world of illusion or there's some people who take it seriously and some people who don't? You know, there's so many questions that we have yet to answer. Like right now is just the reckoning, I think. And then we're going to start parsing this all out. You know, and speaking of the reckoning, I mean, we're going through a bit of a reckoning here at the University of Montana as we kind of, you know, process the what happened during that time that you know where John Cracker wrote his book and where we 
you know, had some failures as an institution, had some failures in law enforcement. Um, I don't know if you saw in the news, we recently uh, were cited for a Cleary Act violation for misreporting some statistics between, I think it was 2012 and 2015. Um, But that brought up an interesting insight that that I took away from your book about these statistics on campus that actually... You know, there's all sorts of incentives for a university to underreport things, but your point was that higher incidence of sexual assault on campus is, actually might be a, a signal that a campus is safer because people are more comfortable coming forward and, and talking about it. Is that, is, that, is that my correct interpretation of your, your thesis there? Well, again, you know, these statistics are are very, very confusing. I mean, I used the number one in five, um, which is the one that's always cited, one in five women um, at an American university will be the um, victim of sexual assault or completed sexual assault, uh, attempted or completed uh, while in college. Um, And that's four-year university, and that includes summers, right? Uh Um, I used that. But, you know, I was very careful to make clear what sexual assault means and that it can include, um, you know, certainly includes non-penetrative acts and it can include things that some people might call groping and other people might call sexual assault. I mean, so this is, again, one of these complexities and paradoxes of sexual assault, which you know, the the university that has zero rape reports is obviously... It's like when, you know, some dictator gets elected with 99% of the vote or something like that. It like, can't be right, true. Right, exactly. It's like, you know, either the university is just straight up covering it up or the students don't feel comfortable reporting to the university. Right. Right. So... A more the more liberal usually the campus is and the friendlier the campus is, the friendlier the Title IX office is, the less bad press the Title IX office has had, sure. um, the more likely the students are to go and turn boys in. And the reverse of that, you know, you could get like zero rape reports, which happens in a lot of universities across the country. So if we think, you know, 25% of these girls are experiencing this and zero rape reports, you know, seems pretty ridiculous. So, yeah, I do think, you know, that a school that has a lot of rape reports is, is actually a safer school in a lot of ways. Um, it also may be a more liberal social justice school, and that kind of may go along with this whole thing. You know, part of the point that I make in my book is that, you know, not being somebody who is working with a political agenda here, I still saw in the data and saw in the people, the sociologists who are studying this, that, you know, guys who are chauvinists, there's, there's, people are starting to make a correlation that, you know, chauvinists, the creepy guy, the guy who's in the frat, who everybody says is like weird, quote unquote, creepy with women. Sure. Um, who makes like, you know, inappropriately sexual jokes all the time um, and everybody kind of laughs and some nervously, that's actually the guy to stay away from. And so I think that, uh, you know, the social justice stuff is, is, you know, a little tired and getting harder to listen to all the time. But at the same time, you know, it, it is creating a, 
group of students who are more um, ethical in the way they treat each other and sexually, of course, as well. And that, I mean, yeah, you kind of reference in there, your book closes with, you know, a series of, of recommendations and, and action items for various constituents in the community. Um, you talk about avoiding the, the hyper-masculine guy. Um, you talk about staying in groups, and that's actually one area where, you know, the Greek system actually helps out with young women, mm-hmm. and they, they parade around in groups during rush and pledge times. Um, other rules that kind of stuck out to me, the, the one that, that I've been thinking about the most was the lowering of the drinking age recommendation. You recommend lowering the drinking age to 18. Can you talk about kind of the logic behind that? I think a lot of people who study um, sexual assault or how to, you know, improve college campuses are really enthusiastic about this idea, which, of course, really does not have any <laughs> possibility of happening. But the notion is, is that, you know, we have many students who are going to four year universities now. A lot of them are taking five or six years. So you really have a split among the students with who can drink legally and who cannot drink legally. Right. And particularly when 18-year-olds, you know, can go to war and lose their lives for our country, it just seems kind of preposterous that they can't drink. Um, you know, obviously we don't want people drunk driving, but, you know, there are some some studies that are showing that whenever you start drinking, whether it's 18 or 21, that's when the biggest risk is for the drunk driving. So we could move it to 18 and hopefully not have a drunk driving problem among teenagers. Um, since we all know teenagers are drinking anyway. And mm-hmm. the real issue is, is that alcohol, you know, when it's kind of something that's impermissible, that's trespassing, that's um, making you you know, cooler and more adult and like something that's elite and, oh, come to our party that, you know, we're just going to have special party on the third floor. And it's about the guys who have the alcohol and the girls who come to hook up with them um, really deforms campus culture and really gives um, a lot of sucker to the, you know, Greek system, which I believe, and and really a lot of people who study this believe, um, is one of the most, like, kind of, like, duh, obvious things yeah. that we could change about campuses to change sexual assault. Like, we're sitting here discussing microaggressions, and nobody's discussing how, like, one in six American boys now belongs to a frat or an, in, and you know, these cement, like, these horrible gender norms, even if it's a good frat, you know, quote-unquote. And believe me, there are a lot of good frats. Like, I'm not saying they're all rapists. I'm just saying, like we know that these kind of toxic gender norms about like, you know, girls um, need to kind of be demure and boys need to push as hard as they can um, because that's how a real boy has sex. Like that's really at the heart of the issue here. So why would we allow the, you know, Greek culture to Greek, you know, institutions, um, to have so much sway over our campuses and the answer is financial of course which is you know universities like to have outsourced entertainment otherwise they'd have to entertain these kids yeah and i suppose too the fraternities are a big mechanism for for generating alumni support and donor support and and all that sort of school spirit right that that has a long sort of present value structure to it Mm mm-hmm Definitely. I mean, it's, you know, where you want to go and you come back to visit your school, right? 
you go back and you crack a beer on the lawn and of the fraternity. And, you know, I thought a lot about social networks for the book and um, the ways in which like millennials are really um, devoted to social media and they need social media. They need those connections to move forward. And frats and sororities are great ways to create a network to get a job these days to stand out, you know, to know the right people. I mean, we can all buy a nice car on, you know, installments these days, or we can all get like, you know, clothes, all the clothes are available at a, you know, online for $15, (laughs) like a knockoff of everything of Chanel. Um, You really need to have a network in order to stand out. You know, that got me thinking about, um, you you go through, you, you, you write about fraternities extensively, you kind of you, you write about um, sports teams and particularly college football and basketball, and you kind of say that they're not actually as big a problem as you know one might think, just because it's a small number of people. Um, I, I think about my experience as a college athlete, and then here as a professor, my experience with some of the the athletes on campus. I mean, I, I can understand certainly, and there's the cases abound where. And collegiate athletics have contributed in, in awful ways to this problem. Yet at the same time, I also think that sports teams could be a really powerful mechanism for fixing the problem. I just think of, you know, the social norms that can grow out of a team and, you know, with strong leadership uh, and the right kind of leadership, like these little pockets of, of students in these college settings. I mean, it's it's where you get a lot of your values and your your sort of codes of behavior uh, are as a student athlete. And I wonder if that could be a part of the solution. But, oh, I mean, definitely. Yeah. I mean, uh, look, you know, I, my, my book came out at hardcover last year and then I did a big update on it um, recently. It just came out in paperback and I went through the book and realized I didn't really um, address sports as much as I had wanted to um, because there's, you know, best um program that uh has been tested so far for men is a, uh, i think it's called um uh coaching boys into men and it's a program um trying to help coaches understand how to talk to their male athletes um about sexual assault about gender relations about respectability about ethics about how to be a real man and you know a lot of Sociologists have found that coaches are actually the key. Um, If they can get the coaches to install these kinds of values, you know, that's an adult who kids will actually listen to. They're not going to listen to the guy who comes for, you know, an hour to visit campus and the sexual violence department has hired him and he's going to stand there and talk about toxic masculinity. Like, that's not going to work. You know, it has to be somebody who kids respect. And I think it's true. I mean, look, it's the same thing about fraternities, you know, the fraternity system, which is under enormous heat um, from hazing and sexual assault in the last like year or two. Um, you know, they've spent a lot of time putting forward this idea of like, well, we can be protective, you know, and, and they might be right. I mean, they're, they might be right that they're that a, a very, very good frat can be protective um i just think the general uh idea of having 
kids silo themselves into single sex groups and then socialize in that fashion and have costume themes where the girls have to wear skimpy costumes. And then of course, remember that, you know, at at national fraternities uh, serve alcohol and national sororities are forbidden from serving alcohol. So sororities do not have parties. You know, everybody knows that whoever is the host of the party gets to set the rules. You know, that's the true, no matter what age you are. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you just, I I think that that's, uh, I'm talking about like for social life, I think the frats have to change. They have to become co-ed or something like that. But in terms of changing minds, um, the coaches hold the key. And athletics, of course, you know, football and basketball are unfortunately still, you know, showing a lot of corruption because there's just, a lot of money in college yeah. football. Yeah, there's you. all sorts oh. of problems there. Gosh. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, come on, think about the incentives to keep a player on the team, particularly if it's one of these blurred lines kinds of ideas, particularly if it's a case where it's like, come on, can we even prove this? This girl had sex with this other football player last week. Who's to say that she didn't want to have sex with this one? You know, like, I mean, I was shocked when I looked at so many of the cases that are, you know, legit gang rape, um, of college football players, how many of them start as sex between a girl and two players or a girl and a player and a recruit? They start as consensual sex, but then they turn into something that's not consensual and the girl doesn't know how to go. But, you know, that allows there's 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 wiggle room to twist these cases, I guess, is what I'm saying. And if you're you know, a bad kind of coach and you're listening to your boosters and you want to keep this guy on the team, you're, you know, you can always find something to prove your point that it was consensual the whole way through. Yeah. And if the only metric that counts in keeping your job is the number of wins, I mean, that's, that's a big problem. It creates right. a lot of moral hazard. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So Vanessa, as we, I want to be respectful of your time, but, um, I just want to close with a question about hope. Like what gives you hope and optimism that uh, as a society we're, we're going to do better on this issue and do better on this issue at, at universities as well? Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty optimistic about it despite yeah. the conversation we no, just No, no, no. I think your book, um, is, your book is hard to read in some ways, but in other ways it gives you a lot of optimism. Right, yeah. I mean, look, the fact that Um, you're doing this interview with me and we just had this thing happen at the Brett Kavanaugh hearings and it was bad. Believe me, I, I don't really think Kavanaugh should be on the court. And I think that's because, you know, he showed himself to be a man of low character, whether or not he is a rapist, you know, I wouldn't presume to say uh, at this point with the evidence, but you know, he is certainly a man of low character and not befitting the court in my opinion. Um, he, he, Christine Blasey Ford was not treated the way that Anita Hill was treated. Sure. You know, she wasn't um, like, a, you know, nailed to nailed to a stake. Like she really was um, waved away and her story was not taken seriously. But there is now an understanding of the way that you have to treat people who come forward where she's not a gold digger. She's not looking for the limelight. She's not trying to get famous you know Mm -hmm. all you had to do is look at this woman to say like 
wow, she's a rationalist. She's a scientist. She's a mom. She's, you know, a middle-aged lady who has no interest in sitting here. She's not getting anything from this. Um, and that's a real first step to understanding that victims are coming forward because they truly believe this happened to them. Proving it, that might be a whole other can of worms. But we have to take what people say seriously. Remember how hard it was for people to take seriously that soldiers had PTSD? Yeah. It's kind yeah. of like that. Like, what do you mean? Are you a man? How could you not take this? Come on, get it together. Why you are signed you up for it. Yeah, all that stuff. Right. Exactly. So I feel like we're kind of there now where people are saying, okay, well, no, maybe she's telling the truth. We just don't know what the correct punishment is. But, you know, we don't want to know what the correct punishment is for anything. Right. I don't know how long a drug dealer should go to jail. Like nobody can figure that out. And so there's just, I think we're at the beginning of this, this understanding that you know, this is something that has to be taken seriously, even if it doesn't sound like what happened was a big deal to you or you would have acted differently. That doesn't mean it's not a big deal to that person. And, um, you know, we're going to get guys like Harvey Weinstein, like the serial predators. Those are the first guys who are going to go. And then the next part is going to be, well, how do we talk to each other in an ethical manner about sex? How do we change from this kind of like, you know, just get yours and who cares and hook up and you know the way that kids are kind of treating each other today like oh it's just like somebody i met through the dating app who cares just ghost them later and you know their feelings don't really matter kind of attitude that is prevalent because of the narcissistic social media um and i think we're gonna get to a deeper conversation i really do i think in a couple of years we're gonna be like wow huh that, that was pretty crazy that we even thought that way Two years ago, you know? Yeah. Well, having these conversations and, and grappling with it in public is, 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 it might seem messy, but it's, it's shining a light on it as the way forward. So I appreciate yeah. deeply the work you're doing, the, the book, uh, Blurred Lines, Rethinking Sex, Power, and Consent on Campus is an important one. I mean, it's one that uh, I will read again. And, and when my daughters are the right age, I will have them read it and we'll discuss it as a family i mean it's it's powerful stuff vanessa thank you for doing that work and for thank coming you. on the podcast to talk about it thank you so much i so 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 appreciate it thanks that was a great conversation all right so here's where i say i hope you enjoyed that conversation with vanessa i mean i guess i hope you enjoyed it but really i hope you found it meaningful and insightful and hopefully educational and it makes you think about this topic and Hopefully talk about it with your family, your children, and go learn more about it. Okay, next week, I am really excited to bring you Cheryl Strayed. Cheryl Strayed, the best-selling author of Wild and Brave Enough and several other great books. She was here as the Presidential Lecture Series speaker a few weeks back, and uh, we couldn't catch her schedule while she was here, but she graciously agreed to a remote interview after the fact. So we caught up with Cheryl talk all about her writing, her process, the, the path that led her to being a best-selling author and uh, part of Oprah's inner circle and all the amazing things that's happened to her. And look forward to chatting with Cheryl about all that next week. Stay tuned. Remember that A New Angle was brought to you by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. By now, you've been listening long enough to know that these guys are big and that they sell pretty much everything electrical you would ever need. 
but you might not know that they hire a ton of University of Montana students. If you want to learn more about careers at CED, visit cedcareers.com. It's a great website name. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps. Kamzar, Elizabeth Willie, interns, Aspen Runkle, Mason Dow, and Max Gibson. Huge thanks to VTO for the tunes, and finally props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Before we go, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word, and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot. See you next time.